We have uh, been working hard. It's April 1st. You know what that means. It is, I've had to exercise a lot of self-control, uh, not to do the ultimate April Fool's prank. Um, but what we have done, we've tried to commission you effectively as parents in the name of the empty tomb. And as Jesus died, many there crying. Um, when the children go scoop up all their eggs today, we've left them empty. So the children will cry. You'll be able to tie in the message, and it'll be great. The gospel will be shared, and God will be glorified. That's the best I have for April Fools. Um, I do want to say thanks to our silver saints. Our silver saints are all over 25 at least, and they've come up, and they might not be able to run around uh, on the field if we were doing it out there. We are going to do this inside in, in light of the cold and the, the cool uh, and, and precip. Uh, which we'll give you instruction at the very end where that's all going to be. But the Silver Saints have come up, and they've worked hard to stuff those eggs. And I want to say a special thanks to them, but I also want to just expose, um, they are pranksters themselves. Do you have a picture? We caught them playing an April Fool's prank. You know those chocolate eggs? So, uh, Sister Russell, can't believe you did that. Come on, would you help me say thank you to our Silver Saints who've been up here working so hard? Appreciate them. If you haven't passed your books down, please do so. Take out those note cards. And I want to just say it is really good for us to gather together as family. It is really awesome. That's just chairs coming out. It's all good. Uh, it's really good for us to gather together as friends, but even better, as family. And with God as our Father, we really are family together. How many of you know family's going to have its issues? Anybody have anybody uh, this morning take too long in the bathroom or frustrate you before you got here or on the drive here? I see fingers going some. So recognize that's family. Welcome to family. We're not perfect. We're going to be dealing with what we have to deal with, but we'll walk all that out together. There's something so enriching about our gathering together as the church, and I uh, so appreciate you all being here today. And just offering that embrace as we really grow in our relationship with the Lord. And that's my heart, my prayer. So um, I really want to be intentional about our brief time that we have together. So I just want to ask if you would, just put your hand on your heart. Lord, I pray that we would be able to get past any idea of trying to put on an Easter show, put on an Easter program, Lord, we would just understand and recognize really the only reason that you have purposed our gathering is that we might encounter the Savior. And Lord, I know that will bring transformation in every one of our lives for years ahead. And just as Haley was saying, as a legacy that we leave. So help us, Lord, to encounter you today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So I want to give you a pop quiz as we get started. Many businesses that you frequent, products that you purchase, you may not have any idea uh, where the ownership is founded. You know, is it USA owned or is the company somewhere overseas? So I want to give you a little pop quiz. We're going to look at a few different companies and let's see if you can guess uh, if they're USA owned or not. Okay, first one, Gerber Baby Products. USA owned or not? Yes. Gerber is actually owned in Switzerland. Okay, the next one. 
Holiday Inn, USA owned or not? Census, no. Nope, they're owned in England. 7-Eleven. <laughs> 7-Eleven is owned from a company in Japan. Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's is owned from a company in Germany. Bud Light. Come on. <laughs> Belgium. Walmart. What do you think? I mean, that was a given for me when I looked this up. July 28, 2015, Walmart sells to Chinese investment group for over $500 billion. China owned. Crazy. How about Toyota? This is wild. Toyota and Honda, USA owned. <laughs> so what does it mean to own something? And does it really matter anyway? When it all boils down to it, does it matter whose hands something is in? And the answer to that is certainly yes. Ownership speaks of that element, whose hands it's in. Who, when something is in one person's hand, it has a purpose, a function, and even a value that's very different than when it's in another person's hand. So I've kind of thought about this from a standpoint of a basketball. If you've seen my moves on the basketball court, then you know a basketball in my hands is maybe worth the $20 you buy it for. But a basketball in Russell Westbrook's hands was worth $40 million a year per his contract. A tennis racket in my hand is good for maybe two self-inflicted wounds before I finally put it down. But a tennis racket in Serena Williams' hands brought $27 million last year. How many of you know it really matters whose hands it's in? And this is what I want us to talk about today because who controls or who owns something greatly affects the value that it has and the way that it is used. And so today, I want us just to get a feel for, is, it, is your life and is the church, I mean, that's where, that's where I'm going to drive toward, is the church really in the hands of this risen King Jesus that we're celebrating? How many of you know the church in the hands of Jesus is very different than the church in the hands of man? And, and let's be honest, the church hasn't gotten a lot right over the years. Let's just, let's just make sure we all understand that. There are a lot of things the church has not gotten right over the years. But there are a lot of things the church has gotten right. And if you've chosen to focus on what the church has not been able to get right, then maybe you have an attitude against church that really doesn't resemble the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I want you to know, even in the midst of all of the church's shortcomings, Jesus loves the church. Jesus died to establish the church. Jesus wants us to be everything that He's called us to be. Yeah, nobody claps alone. Come on, let's really thank the Lord. He loves the church. There's a book, uh, one of the books in the lobby is called Religious Confusion, and all the proceeds will go to help families in distress if you're interested in picking that up for $10, but it's about trying to straighten out the religious confusion of our day, understand what God's real plan is for the church, and I want to address a little bit today as we walk this out together. This is the thing that we all need to understand. We are all just on a journey trying to find our way. 
We, we're all on a journey just trying to find our way as a pastor, as a dad, as a husband, uh, as a, a mom or a wife or a single person or what, you know, whatever dynamic you live in, we're all just on a journey trying to find our way. We have all kinds of things jockeying for our attention, trying to command our affection and, and take us in a certain direction. And I want us to be able to see a little bit uh, of what this journey looks like in trying to become the church. I want to invite you because I know that right now there are many of you in this room that don't normally go to church. That's why we're packed out today uh, and having to bring in more seats, and we're so glad you're here. But I want you to know Jesus didn't die casually, and Jesus didn't die comfortably to establish the church in the earth. Jesus died sacrificially to establish the church in the earth. And so we need to make sure that we're devoting ourselves to the things He says that are important and allowing those things to be important to us to the degree of sacrifice that he set that example. And I, I think there's just been a lot of misunderstanding about church in general, and I want us to see what does it look like to have the church in the hands of this risen King Jesus. And I'm going to kind of talk to you about a verse of Scripture today. I, I'm taking a little bit of a risk. I'm going to go a little bit deep with you biblically in something. We're going to go over these next several weeks of trying to understand what this is really all about. But Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 to 19, this will be where you write in your first blank if you have those note cards in your hand. And I want, I'm going to walk you through this so that we clearly understand what's being revealed here in Scripture. Jesus and Peter are having this conversation, and Jesus is asking Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. He's saying, you're the anointed one, the Messiah, who's come that we've all been waiting on. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him. Think about what he's saying here. Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. People around you didn't tell you what you know. God revealed it in your heart. How many of you know God can awaken something in your heart today that nobody has to tell you, but God himself awakens it, and it begins to transform your world around you because you then have the purposes of God coming alive within. Come on, that's the faith that God wants us to begin to understand, the church being awakened to the revelation that comes from the Father. So that's the progression of this. It says, you know, you've gotten a revelation from my Father in heaven, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter. See, your identity comes out of God awakening something within you. You didn't make yourself so you can't tell yourself why you were made. God made you, and if you don't discover what He has to say about why He purposed your existence, you'll go to bed every night for the rest of your life wondering why there's something inside of you that never seems to be complete. The Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. That means everything you can accomplish in the temporal world in which we live will never fulfill or complete that eternal drive that exists deep within you. He says, I tell you, Peter, on this rock, God revealing something in your heart, that's the rock of revelation, I will build my, there it is, write it in please, church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against the church that has a revelation from God alive in their heart. Not a, not a church that's become religious. See, this is the thing. This is the problem. And in fact, uh, just this week, I had somebody make the comment, oh, be careful around him. He's a very religious guy. And they don't know who I am to say such a thing. Because the fact is, I'm about as anti-religious as anyone you might meet, and many people that attend this church would absolutely agree and, 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 and say yes to that. I know it can be a little bit perplexing, but let me put it to you this way. Jesus, God, came to the earth. 
He did not come to the earth and spend his time with good people. He came to the earth and spent his time with real people. The problem is in the church, we ask people to get real, and once they get real, then we start trying to make them be good, and really you just have to keep being real because God wants to be real in your life. This is the church. The church is people being real and being honest. How many of you struggle with sin? Raise your hand high. Welcome to Easter. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. We invite people into church and we dress it all up and we pretend we're something we're not and we act as Christian as we can. Listen, Christianity has nothing to do with acting. Be honest about your struggle. That's where God can get into your life. The Bible says when we confess our faults one to another and pray for each other, we will be healed. It requires us to be authentic and transparent and real. And as soon as you start trying to act like you're good, better than you are, then you start hiding where you're real, and then God no longer can get in and transform your life. When we focus on all of our strengths... When we focus on all of our strengths, it just breeds competition. How are you doing? Doing great. Reading my Bible every single day. Praise God. (laughs) Oh, wow. I don't know if I could do that. Right? I mean, when we focus on our strengths, it just breeds this sense of competition. But when we focus on our weakness, it breeds a sense of community. And God came that we might really have community. Let's be honest. We are all just on a journey trying to find our way. I'm going to make you mad if you get close enough to me because I am a very, uh, I need help. (laughs) And all my wife on the front row said, amen, I know. I mean, you understand, I mean, if we just get, a, you, you, can, you can present a certain persona for a certain amount of time, but when we really get down to it, I mean, I'm just as carnal as I can be sometimes. I'm sorry, I hate it that I am, but I'm not going to hide it that I am. And I'm, I'm less carnal than I was a year ago, I think. And, and I'm, you know, growing more in that. But here's the thing. We're all just on a journey trying to find our way. I just want to open a doorway for you to be honest about who God's called you to be. Now, here's the thing. We've misunderstood this, and I'm going to really dig into this more in weeks ahead. I hope you'll be back. We're just going to take the season of time to understand this. But Jesus used a really interesting word, and it's why I asked you to write the word church in, because church is very misunderstood in our day. And I want to try to help you start to peel some layers back and understand why. The Bible was not written in English. Okay, you need to understand that. The original language of the New Testament is Greek. And so when we're studying this and reading, sometimes you need help if you don't really, you know, if you're not into the depth of study of looking into those words, what they really mean. It helps us to see the basis of really what Jesus actually said as opposed to what's been translated into English, which sometimes uh, it just brings greater clarity to look at that. And I want to point something out to you. There were three major institutions in Jesus' day. Three major institutions. There was the synagogue. It was a sacred institution. There was a temple. It was a sacred institution. And then there was something called the Roman Ecclesia. And it was a secular institution. And what Jesus didn't say 
is on this rock of revelation, when God awakens something within you and transforms the world around you, that's what's going on here, I'm going to build the most amazing fortified temple you've ever seen. He didn't use that word. He he didn't say, when God awakens something within you, we are going to have the most phenomenal synagogue expression ever. He didn't use that word. He used the word ecclesia. We translated it church. And it's really important that you understand, this was a secular term. Everyone who heard Jesus use this word knew exactly what he was talking about. But we have lost the essence of what God is revealing about who he's called the church to be. Jesus was, was communicating strategically and on purpose when he used this word. Everyone hearing him knew he was talking about a group of citizens called out for governmental purposes. Everyone say government. Okay, you need to understand Jesus kept talking about the kingdom. Have you, have you read this in your Bible? He kept talking about the kingdom. The kingdom is the king's dominion or the government of God that's established in the earth. And so Jesus all of a sudden starts unlocking this revelation with these people who understood what it was to be a group of citizens that were an expression of these governmental purposes. Technically and literally, the word means a legislative assembly of citizens. A legislative assembly. Now, if Rome conquered a territory then they would send a legislative assembly of citizens or an ecclesia into that conquered territory. And those of you who know your Bible, you're going to know exactly what I'm alluding to when I say this. And that that legislative assembly of citizens, when they would gather together in a conquered territory, even if it was just two or three, then it was as if the emperor of Rome himself had shown up in that conquered territory to declare all Roman authority exists here. Now this is wild because those of you who don't know what I'm referencing, two chapters later, Jesus shows up in this conversation and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand and if two or three are gathered in my name, I am there. What Jesus was saying, the government of heaven has come to the earth. The church is the legislative assembly of heaven almighty and when you go into conquered territory where Jesus has come to conquer every enemy you could ever face, He has conquered cancer. He has conquered division. He has conquered depression. He has conquered every enemy that would ever try and come against you. Come on! We live in a fallen world, and I don't have all the answers for you, but we do serve a risen king, and I know that when we gather in, a, in a, a forum of a fallen land that has now been conquered by our risen king, if there are just two or three of us, the emperor, the king himself, Jesus, is there in our midst proclaiming the authority of heaven, is, rightly, is readily available at our right hand. Jesus probably raised some eyebrows when he used this term because you do know what he's saying is, I have come as the ultimate king, and the church now is in this conquered land, which was Rome, that didn't want to feel like they'd been... Anybody ever wonder why the disciples kept getting arrested in the book of Acts? They understood this concept. This is how Jesus chose to explain who he has called us to be. 
Next blank. We are citizens of heaven with a purposed assignment of influence. We are citizens of heaven. Citizens, I just feel the Lord wants to stir that for a moment. You know, we had a, a man in our church years ago came and he said, he said, Pastor, I've been an illegal immigrant in our country, and I have finally gone through the entire process, and today I tell you, I'm a citizen of the United States of America. And he said, I can't wait to vote. Boy, it struck me. Because citizens understand how to use their voice to define and express the future of that which is to come. Are you getting where I'm going with this? Citizens of heaven know how to use their voice. Our worship, our prayers, our declaration. We are the government of God. Manifest together in the earth to make a declaration that Jesus is alive. The disciples were not being thrown in jail in the book of Acts, the disciples were not being thrown in jail because they were having amazing church services and they were inviting people to attend them. Think about this. You think we might have this off a little bit in regard to the church? That's not why they were being thrown in jail. Gathering. When the, when the disciples did gather, and the Bible says, don't forsake the assembly. Guys, it's important that we gather together like this and ask God to awaken things within us perpetually, regularly, routinely. And the, the disciples did that. They gathered regularly, but they gathered for the purpose of inspiring, empowering, and sending out men and women of God to go into the places where they work, to go into governmental spaces, to go into the educational structures, to go into the business structures, to go and make a difference in their everyday life. That's the expression of heaven that has come to earth to proclaim the love of Jesus. The power of God was invading every single realm of society, and God's people were carrying, the way we like to say it, God's presence into real life. And every week when we conclude a message spoken, you'll see that GP2RL, God's presence to real life, action point of the week. We want you to always walk out of here with your marching orders. And this week it's to purpose, you'll see it on the bottom of your page, purpose to make a daily difference in the lives of those within your reach. Amen. We're going to really focus in on that. And this, this, this season of secret service is what we're calling it. Secret service. Here's our, our graphic for this just to give you a picture. We're asking you to go out and change your world, those people that are within your reach. So you can just see acts of service, hands in action, love in action, church in action. You know, I, I, was, I was speaking at a place called a Dream Center, and they have about 60 students in this Dream Center. Most of them have just come out of prison, and, um, and they're a really wild bunch. And this was just a few months back, and, and I saw, I mean, they are really on fire. Like, they are desperate, they're broken, and Jesus puts the pieces back together. It was amazing. And I was there to speak in the service. I'd been there for the week, actually, doing a bunch of different training and teaching classes and then evening services. And, and in this one particular service, it was mainly the Dream Center students, and they started singing this song, and they, they started singing, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to change the world. I'm going to change the world. And they were singing it with utter passion. And I got up and took the microphone, and I said, you know, Martin Luther once said, Christians don't tell lies, they come to church and sing them. Do you really think you're going to change the world? 
kind of a rude thing to say, isn't it? Some of y'all are hating on me right now. But I said, do you, you're singing it like you mean it, but do you really think you're going to change the world? And then I said this, I want you to stop, and this is, this is what I want to say to you, over these next weeks we're going to, I want you to stop thinking of the world in its 24,000 mile perimeter. And I want you to start thinking of your world in a five foot circle around you. I may not be able to change 24,000 miles of planet, but I can sure change five feet. You get within my reach and you're gonna experience the love of Jesus Christ. You're gonna experience an embrace from heaven. Come on, we're the government of God sent to the earth to express the love of Jesus Christ. We want to do all we can to ensure that the church is in the hands of Jesus every single day. Who owns and controls something greatly affects the value it has and how it's used. Do you agree? I thought of one other analogy with this. If you take a bar of steel and put it in the hands of a nail maker, it'll be worth about $30. If you take that same bar of steel and put it in the hands of a needle maker, it'll be worth about $300. But if you take that same bar of steel and you put it in the hands of a man or a woman who knows how to fashion fine springs for Swiss watches, that bar of steel will be worth as much as $3 million. It really matters whose hands it's in. So I just have this question for you. Whose hands are you in? Your life. Is your life in the hands of Jesus? See, the church, next, next blank, the church in the hands of a risen King Jesus will truly change the world. Is your life in his hands? So this is the way I want to ask this. Some of you perhaps have never taken a step to initiate the process of a relationship like uh, my wife Tracy was sharing earlier where we don't just like introduce ourselves to God and God introduces himself to us and then we're left alone but he's walking with us helping communicate he's revealing things within us to transform the world around us now, let me just go back to this for a second the gospel is not about us trying to convince you to be good enough to represent God well that is religion we do not want that here. The gospel is for all of us to recognize Jesus is nicer than we are. He's more loving than we are. He's more generous than we are. And when he awakens a prompting within us to be kind to somebody when we're busy, we would rather go about our busyness, but we're listening to the promptings of the Lord. We then extend kindness, not because we're so kind, but because he's so kind. And then we start lifting up the name of Jesus and people around us start to understand, oh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It really is about love beyond our own abilities. But you have to put your hands in his life to be aware of those promptings in that direction. So have you done that? Have you taken that step to put your life in his hands? Or maybe you're recognizing, you know, I've taken that step before, but today I need to recognize that I'm not really allowing him to have control. And what I want to do is I want to pray for you, and then I want to introduce you to a concept as we conclude about how to walk this out. But I want to pray for you if you say, I need to put my life in his hands today. And I'm going to ask all across the room, regardless of what anybody else does, this is just between you and your God. If you want to put your life in his hands, maybe the first time, or maybe you're just saying, I, I know I'm not living for him. I need to surrender every area, whatever that looks like. I want you to lift both your hands up in a posture of surrender. And I want to pray for you.
Just hold them there for just a moment. Father, I just thank you for hands raised in this room. I thank you, Lord, that you are doing a work within us to transform the world around us. We come into a place of surrender today, recognizing you are love. You are life. Lord, we are not. And we need you desperately. And I thank you, Father, just for an openness to surrender in this posture and invite you into our lives to lead us, guide us, and direct us. Lord, we place our lives in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, would you just thank the Lord with me for what he's doing in our hearts? That's believing in our heart, and then we confess with our mouth. That's the way the Bible lays this out. You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth. That begins with an initial prayer. It also begins and continues with the way you live your life. And I I shared this picture recently, and I just want to point it out. Haley didn't know what I was talking about today, and she was sharing with you my landing strip of the message. But there are two men in their 90s who recently died. This is Hugh Hefner and Billy Graham. And I want you to think about the multi-generational legacy that follows these two men. The man on the left is Hugh Hefner, founder of Playboy magazine, degraded women, and perpetuated the degradation of women in many, many ways. Incredible legacy that's impacting generations of people. Millions of people have been impacted by the decisions he made and the decisions he did not make. My point is we're all leaving a legacy. What is the legacy you are going to leave? God wants to redeem your past, to restore your future so that the legacy of Christ can be in your wake as you move from this life to the next. And in honor of Billy Graham, uh, who devoted his life to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who went to be with Jesus in heaven just uh, recently, We actually have one of his final moments of sharing the gospel, leading people in the salvation prayer. And I'd like to honor his life and his legacy by giving the late Billy Graham the opportunity to lead us, those of us that have raised our hands saying, I want to make a decision to put my hands in Christ, and for all of us to pray this prayer. I want to ask all of you, let's just join together. It's about 90 seconds of Billy Graham leading us in the sinner's prayer that we might come to know Christ. And would you join me as that video plays and let's respond and pray that prayer to honor that legacy. Today, I'm asking you to put your trust in Christ. I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer, sentence by sentence after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I know that I'm a sinner and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you've died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sins. I repent of my sins. I invite you to come into my heart and life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. He's alive! I've given my life not to attend fights, 
but to a living fight. And he's given me a song to sing. He's given me a flag to follow. I have reason for existence. I know where I've come from. I know why I'm here. I know where I'm going. Do you?